pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right. A beautiful Sunday morning out there. Once again, kind of feels a little like fall this morning. A lot of moisture in the air, depending on where you were. You either had, uh, well, just a lot of humidity fogging up your windshield like I did, or you actually had some pretty dense fog if you were over on the eastern part of our listening area. So if you're out and about, be careful. At least it's daylight out there now. And what a gorgeous day it's going to be. What a gorgeous day it was yesterday. Beautiful evening as well. And uh, ah, this is fall. This is a time we really love working on things outside when you're not sweating so much. And uh, it just makes you feel good to get out and work in that flower garden, that vegetable garden, or whatever you happen to be doing. And that's what uh, we're here to talk about for the next three hours. And it looks like we're going to start with AJ and Mike and Brian. You know how I hate to keep people waiting, so let's just get started with phone calls. Good morning, AJ. How are we doing, Bob? Well, you know, there's not a single bad situation that I'm aware of happening locally, so I'm off to a real good start. How are things around your domain? Well, they haven't started moving too fast yet, so we're in neutral right now. Well, that's a good thing. That's a, that's a very good thing. And I have gotten a lot of uh, laughs and mileage after your uh, comparison of, of the sermon and the skirt uh, a couple of weeks ago. So, <laughs> in fact, one of the best was a preacher said he was going to use it in church that Sunday. <laughs> oh, oh, that's good. That's good. That's good. I got another one for you, but I, I, I don't think it'd be right to use all your airtime. I think a, we better save that for a personal visit. <laughs> the situation I have is, you know, I'm growing these portalaca plants, <clears throat> and in the summertime and fall, you know, they just die back. Mm-hmm. And then in the spring, the seeds uh, sprout back out. <clears throat> Correct. Yeah. Could not buy some seed now and just put it on the ground and let it lay? Would it? Would it work the same way? I tell you, it's fine to buy the seed, but I would wait and not put it on the ground until early spring, probably February or March. We have no idea what the winter is going to bring, and if it stays exceptionally moist, that seed could rot before it has time to sprout. Uh, there might be some birds or some mice or something that got hungry and decided that that looked like a good meal to them. So I think you're wise to go ahead and get the seed whenever. But um, if it were me, I'd wait until probably early March, sometime like that, when the soil is going to start to warm. And put your seed out then, just uh, you know, just to be sure it's still going to be there and be in good shape. Okay, just, just dust it out on top of the surface? Yeah. 
Yeah, just dust it out on top of the surface. If, uh, you know, if there are old plants on top or if you've had a collection of leaves or something like that, uh, just take your rake and just kind of rough the soil up a little bit. You don't have to bury the seed, but anytime I'm going to plant a seed that stays real close to the surface like Portulaca does, you know, I'm going to take the rake and I'm just going to, you know, pretty pretty vigorously scrape that surface of the soil clean so that I know my seed's going to make good seed-to-soil contact. And uh, uh, if it creates some tiny little eighth-inch, quarter-inch deep furrows, all the better. All right. Okay. All right. Well, then I'll give that a whirl and, and see. Uh, <clears throat> where is a good place to get Portalaca seed from? Where do you recommend well, I don't know. Um, you're over. Are you over toward Victoria? Yeah, in Victoria. Yeah, probably. Uh, um, oh, Laurie's place over there. Um, uh, I'm trying to remember the name. <laughs> Laurie, uh, uh, Earthworks. Earthworks. Yeah. That would be a great place. I'm, I'm sure she'll probably have a good selection of seed for you. All right. Well, I'll go make her mad. <laughs> well, yeah, just just pick her on her a little bit and tell her I said hello too. All right, I'll have to tell her about that 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 religious tale. Yeah, yeah, and that's uh, that that's a good Sunday morning subject for you, AJ. So you get out and enjoy, and uh, appreciate you being out there and calling. All righty, Bob. You take it easy. Talk I'll to do you my later. best. All right, sir. Thank you so much. <laughs> Goodbye. Next in line is Mike. Good morning, Mike. Morning, Bob. Um, I just have one question for you today. It's, it's okay. about Texas persimmon. Uh-huh. Um, I was I live in San Antonio, but I was at a nursery in Spring Branch, and they had some baby ones for sale for forty dollars. So I got excited. I bought one, and then uh, only to learn later on that I you got to have two, I guess, a male and a female, in order for them to produce fruit. Now, is what you're calling a Texas persimmon the one that has kind of white bark, small green leaves, and uh, ultimately yeah. produces purple fruit? Well, you need to have a female. You need to have a female plant. Uh, there are lots of male plants around. Uh, I can't say I've ever seen a persimmon fail to set fruit because it didn't get pollinated. But if you get if you've purchased a male plant. Um, you're you're not going to see any babies on it. Okay, so if you have a female, it it could be self-fertile. Is that what you're saying? Well, no, I just stated that there, even though you aren't seeing them when you're driving around, there are lots of male plants growing around most of the area, and uh, it's pretty certain that uh, you're going to have, you know, if you've ever been around them in the spring, you know how fragrant they are, and you can literally hear the bees buzzing around them. They are so popular with the pollinators. Now, uh, you know, who knows what state our pollinators will be in by spring, but uh, uh, it's one of those things that, uh, again, I've never seen them fail to produce. It's kind of like Yopon holly. Um, Yopons, you've got to have a you've got to have a male plant around, but uh, um, I've never seen a female Yopon holly fail to set berries because uh, it didn't get pollinated. There's just there's just plenty of pollen around in most cases. Okay, gotcha. Thank you very much. And you're probably not looking for a heavy fruit crop because it can be kind of messy. Uh, are you out in, ta- out in the country or are you in town? No, I'm in the city in San Antonio. 
Okay. Yeah, it's um, they're they're fun plants, and uh, the fruit is very popular with uh, the raccoons and the possums and the squirrels and everything else. So uh, uh, you're probably not not crazy about having just a huge amount of fruit. Although I've known people to make jelly with it, I've known people to make wine with it. So uh, it's a fun plant to have around. Um, if this plant, uh, did you? Uh, did you get it at a reputable nursery? Where did you Where did you find the plant? It was at uh, Spring Creek Gardens in Spring Branch. Okay, they, they probably you know it's kind of uh, it's kind of like it is with possum holly, kind of like it is with yopon holly. The only thing the growers produce are going to be the female plants because uh, they okay, you know people are, are are looking for the fruit now. Uh, if it happened to be a, a, you know, a case where they just went out and picked up a bunch of that black fruit and planted the seeds, uh, then you've got a 50-50 chance for getting a male or female. But uh, if this is a plant they bought from a wholesale grower, that grower almost certainly uh, you know, took all his cuttings from female plants, knowing that that's what people were wanting. So we'll probably know next spring. <laughs> In the meantime, just keep your fingers crossed or, uh, you know, plant two or three of them. And every time you plant an additional one, the uh, um, odds of getting, you know, a good pair increase. But, yeah, it's a good plant. It'll be very, very trouble-free for you. I have never been able to totally figure out why they drop their leaves sometimes, why they hold their leaves. Uh, they grow wild, especially on my partner's ranch. I have only a few on my ranch, but she has thousands of them. And it's just yeah. one year they'll go over one period, they'll go for two years without dropping their leaves. Uh, the next year they'll drop their leaves. Sometimes they drop their leaves if it's really dry, but other times they don't. Sometimes they drop their leaves if it's really wet. Other times they don't. So don't panic if just almost any month of the year you see them start shedding leaves because uh, uh, they're just okay. unusual plants. They're extremely hardy plants, but uh, they behave in different ways, so don't panic uh, if if they surprise you All by right. dropping their leaves when you're not expecting it. <laughs> okay, thank you very much. It's a pleasure, Mike. Thank you for the call this morning. Goodbye. All right, All right uh, let's see here. I think we've got time to take one more call before we take a break, and that would be Brian. Good morning, Brian. Hey, good morning, Bob. It is definitely a nice, foggy November morning, that's for sure. But, yes. Uh, we've got a comment about your your discussion with Howard Garrett yesterday about caffeine yeah. and coffee grounds. Um, from what I've seen, Bob, is that it doesn't really have an effect if the coffee grinds are compost. I use them in my worm compost and okay. composting for a little while. I've had nothing but success. Um, well, that's, I think that's good to hear. Use like um, wood chips or whatever else. It's just a source of carbon stealing nitrogen. So my thought is compost them and then use them. Or like you said, keep them on top of the soil. Um, you know, well, not too concentrated. Should be no problem. I very much appreciate you sharing that with us, and it makes perfect sense. You know, caffeine is, you know, an organic product that is going to be decomposed by microbes, and you've obviously got a good diversity of microbes uh, in in your compost pile. So, I sincerely appreciate you sharing that experience with us, and I think you're absolutely right with what you're describing. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate it, Bobby. I, I, you guys uh, tickle my brain when you when you talk on Saturday morning, so it's good to <laughs> have something to think about. 
<laughs> well, it's, uh, uh, you know, the, I think the more we use our brains, the longer they last. And uh, you are one of the ones that really enjoys growing, and I appreciate hearing from you. You get out and have a wonderful Sunday. Hey, you too. Talk to Thanks, you. Thanks, Ryan. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Uh, let's get a little message in here for my friends at Rhonda's Nature's Way. And, uh, you know, keeping that brain healthy is a really important thing. And believe it or not, there are substances out there, supplements out there that will help, shall we say, improve your mental acuity. Uh, there's lots of different things that will help you simply think better, keep your brain in better shape. And, of course, that applies to your whole body, not just your brain. And Rhonda's Nature's Way specializes in things like that, things that will help you sleep better, things that will build your immune system. You're not going to find those things in the grocery store or the big chain pharmacy. And uh, even just good vitamins. There's a big difference in what you're going to find at Rhonda's and what you're going to find most other places. Rhonda's Nature's Way, just she has so many wonderful things over there. Uh, she also does some very interesting therapies. Reflexology, if you've never had a reflexology session, I highly recommend that you try it. If you know how special it is, why don't you give somebody a reflexology session with Rhonda for, for Christmas? She has gift certificates, and uh, I've given several <laughs> to uh, friends that I think would really enjoy it. They've all come back saying, wow, that was special. She also does Beamer light therapy, red light therapy, ear candling, uh, foot detox. Uh, there's just many, many different reasons that I'll send you over to Rhonda's Nature's Way. Open every day except Sunday and major holidays right there in the shopping center at the corner of I-10 and Callahan, kind of across the road from Sprouts. And uh, it's, it's just always a good day to go see Rhonda. Take your questions with you. Um, if you've been to the doctor lately, I had somebody text me lately and say, gosh, thanks for this suggestion. I had a physical. I took the results of my blood work uh, with me to Rhonda's, and she helped me figure out what was going to help me uh, stay best and correct the few minor problems I have. Rhonda's Nature's Way is a special place staffed by very special people, easy to find and always there to help you. Hope you get by and see them. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening on a gorgeous Sunday morning. Hope you remembered to uh, set your clocks back, otherwise you... Uh... <laughs> It, it it was a little earlier than you thought when you got up this morning. And um, anyway, it's nice to get that extra hour of sleep, even though I do hate losing that evening daylight. But maybe they'll come to their senses one of these days and just let us have year-round uh, evening daylight. Uh, looks like we've got another mic ready to talk. Have some open lines, too, if you're getting a busy signal there for a while. Be a good time to call. You know the number, 210-599-5555. While I say good morning, Mike. Good morning, Bob. Well, good morning, sir. How are you this morning? Oh, better than some and not as good as others. <laughs> I think that could probably be applied to just about every person on earth uh, just about every morning. Yeah. So, yep, it's oh, uh, yeah. oh, as long yeah. as good outweighs the bad, everything's everything's fine. And then, I mean, uh, you know, it's like 62 degrees down here. So, I mean, it's beautiful. Oh, Yeah. Oh yeah, it's uh, and I suspect you've had at least a a little bit of rain over the past couple of weeks, and I was very uh, surprised yeah. to very surprised to see my my creek still dry, but uh, there's actually a little flow in the Guadalupe River for the first time probably in a year year and a half. So uh, things are headed the right direction. Let's just hope they don't get sidetracked. I know. Tell me about it. Anyways, um, 
pescadillos. I believe they're called uh, saddle burrs and I don't know all type of other burrs and stuff. Yeah, uh, they're just starting. They're just starting to pop up. They're like real low to the ground right now. Uh-huh. What could I use to uh, kill them? Um, I just used a grubbing hoe, literally. Um, or you know, at this stage, they're really easy to pull up. If you've got a big area and you want to spray, uh, vinegar and orange oil will take care of them. But you sure want to get them before before those big old burrs ripen. I call them cockleburrs, yeah. and uh, I was out in some of my fields, and I I always go through because it's a very distinctive leaf. And uh, it's just one of the things when I'm out just, you know, walking the fields and things like that. Uh, I'm sure the cattle pick them up and carry them around is how they get, you know, spread because those birds right. sure, sure get stuck in the, you know, in their hair. But um, if you've got patches of them, again, vinegar and orange oil will do it. Uh, if you need the exercise and like to keep your back limber like I do, I just pull them up and throw them in a bucket and put them on the burn pile. And uh, the ratio of vinegar and orange oil? You want to use a strong vinegar. If you're getting it from the grocery store, get 9% pickling vinegar, they call it. If you want to get something a little a little heavier duty, the nurseries will have it as 20%. Uh, and either way, the ratio is going to be about 2 ounces of orange oil to a gallon of vinegar. I put just a dab of molasses in there because I think it makes more effective. Uh, some people will put just a little bit of dish soap in there. Uh, but the vinegar and the orange oil are the most important things. It, what it does, it, it softens up uh, the cuticle on the, the plant. The orange oil softens up the, uh, the leaf covering. And then the um, acetic acid in the vinegar is what actually kills the plant. It doesn't leave any residue in the soil. And you can, you know, replant in the area or whatever you're wanting to do as soon as, as, soon as the leaves are dry. They'll usually be dead within 24 to 48 hours. Great. All right. Thank you again, Bob. Well, it's my pleasure. Did I see a note on my desk when I came in this morning to call you? Yes. Okay. Yeah, that was... Is that what you want to ask me about? Yes. Very good. Then I won't bug you later in the day. You get out and have an absolutely wonderful Sunday. All right. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Looks like it's going to be Alfred and then Clifford. Good morning, Alfred. Good morning. Morning, sir. Uh, I, got, I got a quick question for you. Yesterday you were talking about a short length winter rye. What was the name of that again? Well, there's several of them out there, and, and they call them perennial rye. And if you live further north, they might be perennial. Here they are still annuals. They live a little later into the summer if you keep them watered, uh, but they're always going to die out. And most all the perennial rye are good. My favorite is one called Top Flight, F-L-I-T-E. Um, they also, there's one out there that's harder to get. I think the golf course is pretty much gobble it all up. There's one called Playmate, which is pretty easy name to remember. Um, there's another one that's a little bit taller out there that is called Greyhound. But uh, the two shorter ones are Playmate and Top Flight, and I think Top Flight's the one you're more likely to find in the nurseries. 
that's the one I'm going to target. I got one more question for you. Let me let me tell you one uh, more thing about it. Um, the rate that you put it out is important. If you're covering bare ground with it, you know, rye doesn't spread out. It doesn't produce runners like Bermuda and St. Augustine do. So you have to you have to seed fairly heavily. If you're putting it over bare ground to stop mud, figure on using it about a pound for every 50 square feet. If you're overseeding your lawn just because you'd like to have, you know, nice green lawn for the winter months, you don't want to do it too heavily because you don't want to shade out your existing grass. So uh, over where you're overseeding, use about one pound per hundred square feet. And uh, anyway, I'm sorry. Go ahead with the other question. Oh, I appreciate the information. Thank you. The other question is, earlier in the year, I planted uh, Bermuda, something called Tahoma 31. Okay. And I had I have a serious problem with nut sedge. You know, that mm-hmm. weed how, how do I kill that nut sedge without damaging the Bermuda? Well, nut sedge in nature is a semi aquatic plant and you will reduce your nut sedge just by growing your Bermuda on the dry side. Bermuda is very drought tolerant doesn't take uh in in letting it just just don't be watering three times a week like some people do keep your bermuda on the dry side and the areas where you have the nut sedge it doesn't like a lot of microbial activity and what we use to stimulate microbial activity is molasses and molasses is not going to cause it just to you know go away overnight but if you'll mix fairly strong molasses, somewhere between a quarter of a cup and half a cup of molasses to a gallon of water, and saturate the soil where you're seeing your nut sedge, you'll notice in a couple of weeks it just suddenly starts turning yellow to brown and just rots away. Um, like I say, keep it on the dry side. If you keep it wet, nothing short of nuclear weapons will, will kill that stuff out. But... Um, yeah, <laughs> it uh, and so it's what not. What kind of do you recommend? Cheap, whatever you can find. Probably your feed store or nursery is going to have just a good agricultural molasses. I use the same molasses that goes into the lick feeder for my cattle. Uh, uh-huh. Doesn't I mean? I guess you could put Aunt Jemima on there or something, but that'd be a lot more money than you need to spend. And uh, um, it's, Does that uh, it's, come in a, like a pellet, that, that uh, agricultural molasses, does it come in a pellet form? You can do it that way if you like. Uh, they call it dry molasses, and it's not crystalline molasses. It doesn't dissolve. Uh, it's just molasses that has been soaked into some sort of substrate. Sometimes it's ground-up cane. Sometimes it's sawdust. It's just something that molasses has been soaked into. So don't put it, put it in a bucket and let it dissolve or try to let it dissolve because it won't. Uh, a man that I thought was very smart is a man that actually sold me a sprayer that I can pull behind my tractor, and uh, uh, he got the bright idea. He would dump it in his his tank and let it dissolve. Took him three days to get those jets cleaned out when he figured out it didn't dissolve. So uh, the dry molasses is nice because you can just scatter it out by hand rather than diluting it with water. On the other hand, ounce for ounce is a little bit more expensive to buy it as dry molasses. So you do whatever works best for you. If you do it in the dry form, you'll need to put it on pretty heavily. Well, one quick question on the molasses again. Will it help uh, reduce thatch, you know, like dead grass? In the oh, lawn? absolutely. Absolutely. It's the best thing in the world for breaking down you know, thatch. It increases microbial life. It softens the soil. 
Um, breaks down thatch molasses is a great, great agricultural product. Uh, if you get the form, which has a little bit of urea in it, it's actually a pretty good fertilizer. I've managed to convert a few people that grow coastal hay to get away from the synthetic nitrogen that ruins their soil. And just every time they make a cutting, go out and spray with molasses at the rate of about five gallons per acre. And a lot of them said that's the only fertilizer they have to, or the only fertilizing they have to do. And that sure. they've got the best uh, hay that they've ever had. So um, it it depends on, you know, how good or how bad your soil is. But molasses is great for everything except nutsedge. Awesome. And it, it won't it won't harm the the Bermuda there when I spray it on there. On it'll the just make it'll just make it grow that much better. Outstanding. Thank you, sir, for your time. Always a pleasure. Appreciate the call this morning. Thank you. Goodbye. Yes, Have a great day. You too. Bye. Let's see. Hang on a second, Clifford. Uh, I need to get a break in here, and that means I get to talk about Wild Birds Unlimited. I don't care what kind of birds you like. If you're into birding, Wild Birds Unlimited has things that will help you enjoy that hobby. They've got the best in feeders, many with lifetime guarantees. They've got the best in seed and seed cakes. They've got that uh, super hot seed, too, that you can put out that the squirrels and raccoons won't go after, but the birds will love it since birds don't taste heat. There's so many different things relating to the uh, hobby of birding. I mean, they've got nesting boxes. They've got martin houses. They've got the poles. I was in there just last week buying a couple of covers to hang over bird feeders to keep the rain from softening the seed. You're just going to find everything you're looking for including great binoculars, great optics for enjoying the birds and wildlife even more. And by the way, Christmas is coming. Gift-giving season is right here. What a great place to go shop for your friends that love nature and love being out of doors. And Wild Birds Unlimited is a great gift store, too. Each Wild Birds Unlimited shops independently for their gift merchandise. And Kyle and his staff out there, my gosh, they do such a good job. Beautiful wind chimes, beautiful, ah, just, just wonderful things for the garden. Get out and see them. And like I say, they are there to answer your questions. They're there to help you with products. It's just an amazing store. You look at it and think, well, gosh, that's not a very big store. And you walk inside and say, my gosh, how they have room to have all these different things. Wonderful place to visit. They're out in the shopping center at the corner of Northwest Military Highway in Hebner, kind of on the side that faces Northwest Military. They're there to help you. And if you have a question, you can always give them a call. 479-BIRD. That's 210-479-BIRD. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening on a gorgeous Sunday morning. It is just absolutely beautiful out there, and I hope you're going to get to spend a lot of the day outside. Uh, we're going to talk next to Clifford and then to Mark. Good morning, Clifford. Hey, morning, Bob. How are you today? Off to a good start. I, this this is the kind of days that make me glad we live in South Texas. Ain't that the truth, man? Hey, I'm I've, I've called several times. I'm up here in North Bee County, and yeah. um, I have a small pasture that I mean, it just got overgrazed this past mm-hmm. summer. We just didn't have enough moisture. Right. And I went back a few weeks ago when uh, the lion weatherman said we were going to get rain. And, uh, we call it the we call it the joke of the day is what we call the weather forecast. So yeah, I know what you're talking about there. But go ahead. I'm not sending I'm not sending my kid to college. I'm gonna send him to become a meteorologist. There's zero accountability in that group. <laughs> uh, Amen. 
but I seeded out with rye, and uh, it came up, but I'm losing it out because I don't have enough moisture, and I can't irrigate it as much as I want. Mm-hmm. But it's really sandy loam. I mean, it's sandy, sandy soil. And uh-huh. I was thinking about seeding it out with some of that hubam, that sweet white clover. Yeah, yeah, hubam clover. Well, would you recommend that down this far south? I don't need it for all year long, but I'm looking mm-hmm. to, to put a little bit of nitrogen back into the soil, uh, looking to just try to improve soil quality, but also give me some forage for my, my livestock. Sure. And and Hubam clover is a great source of that. Um, vetch is a another one that is very commonly used. Austrian winter peas are a third one that is, you know, all the, these things are legumes, and of course the legumes are things that contain or have little nodules on the roots that contain the bacteria that take nitrogen from the air and put it back into the soil. Uh, unfortunately, all of them take moisture, and that, you know, that therein lies the issue because uh, you can spend a lot of money on seed, and by the way, all those things you need to inoculate the seed, and if you get it from somebody like Douglas King Seed or someone, uh, they will certainly have the inoculant to put on it. So it's, it's you know, what is what do we call agriculture? We call it legalized gambling with worse odds. But uh, the other thing that you're going to have to do is to be able to keep, uh, do you run cattle or sheep? What What do you run? I run uh, pasture hogs. Okay. Uh, you're going to have to keep them off of, you know, off of it until it is up and growing. And, uh, you know, actually hogs are, are probably easier than, than bigger animals are. But um, and, and how big an area are we talking about uh, doing this with? How many, how many acres of pasture land do you have about, there? About five acres. Okay, um, you really need to read and study on rotational grazing. Um, even you know, even on very small, uh, we would call them paddocks rather than pastures. When you're talking that small an area, it can be done effectively. And you know, the the situation that you're talking about is is very common. And what rotational grazing says is that we don't. We don't move the animals around from one pasture to another until the next, or one paddock to another, until the next area is ready to be grazed. And when you have, you know, basically one five-acre field, they're going to eat it down to nothing, and you're going to have very little, you know, very little come back. And then you're looking at overseeding not just with the cover crop, but perhaps, you know, replanting whatever your main forage is. And even, uh, I have a, a friend up in the hill country that uh, had a problem with his horses, just ate it down to where his five acres were just mud. Even on that small an area, he divided it into three paddocks and started rotating his horses around, and all of a sudden he had great grass again. There's a fellow over okay. in East Texas that runs 110 cows on 97 acres and has the fattest, most beautiful cows you've ever seen, and he moves them on a daily basis from one to another, and uh, I attended a lecture he gave one time, and somebody said, well, how do you move that many cows uh, on a daily basis? He said, well, I hate to tell you how easy it is. I just open the gate, and they all go running into the next <laughs> into the next area. But um, Acres USA is an organization that uh, of farmers and ranchers uh, aimed at increasing soil quality and, you know, promoting sustainable agriculture. And 
I you, you'll be the first hog farmer that I that I know of that uh, has really tried rotational grazing. But uh, basically, what happens is that you never, since you're not moving them from one paddock to another until the soil is ready for it. Let's say you divided your five acres into five one-acre tracks. You would never have more than one at a time that really got overgrazed. And you would, you know, if, if we did get into a bad drought or something like that, you'd simply start your supplemental feeding, which I'm sure you have to do when the plot that they were on got eaten down. Again, I could talk for two hours about rotational grazing, but what you have is not a temporary situation. In South Texas, this is a problem you're going to face year after year after year. And um, I I think that you might find that rotational grazing would would improve your bottom line and make your life a whole lot easier. Uh, in the meantime, and, and by the way, uh, we're not talking about putting up you know four feet or putting up hog wire over the whole thing. Hogs are, as you know, exceptionally smart animals, and uh, electric fence is how you is how you manage them. And electric fence is so much easier than it used to be. And I apologize if I'm preaching to the choir, but, you know, there are 50,000 other people out there that need this information, yep. even if you already have it. But uh, nowadays, what I've used, and, and I've used it to keep raccoons and things out of my corn, but uh, you can get basically a polypropylene rope. Uh, it's a very thin rope. It's a very thin cord that actually has the copper wires embedded in it. And it is very, very effective. And yet it is so easy to put out. You simply put it up on insulated stakes, uh, real easy to put up, real easy to take down if you have to, real easy to put a little, you know, spring-loaded uh, thing that you can create a gate with. And even horses, man, they they encounter it one time, and then you can practically turn it off. They're not going to go anywhere near it again. And so it's it's not going to be the expense or the work you think. Uh, the biggest problem is going to be uh, that you, have, of course, have to have water in each of your smaller areas. And so maybe you want to divide it into four areas. You want to take your water line uh, to the center point, and then you can put, you know, I, I don't know how you provide water for the hogs at this point, but you could have basically your water line one to run to one place and then just, you know, off the four compass points, you can put whatever kind of uh, uh, water trough uh, they they normally drink from. So it's it's a bit of work, but again, um, I think it has the potential to largely solve, you know, what's going to be a problem that you're going to face over and over. No, I appreciate that. That sounds great. I had one other question. Sure. Um, so I got a gifted a brave heart rose plant and mom i don't i don't do roses i don't like roses <laughs> uh, but it, it was gifted and uh i'm very blessed to get the gift but how do i plant this thing i mean i've read thirty thousand different ways online and uh but for south texas other than digging a hole that's twice the circumference and putting some good soil in what do i need to do you need to dig, like you said, you need to dig a good hole. Um, you're going to have to keep that rose well watered. Roses are one plant that uh, um, if they dry out completely one time, you can actually kill them. Now, once they're established, once they have their roots spread out, and you've got good soil to work with for roses, so um, it's going to be the first six months you're going to be taking pretty intensive care of it. Uh, do you know if it's a bush form or a climber? Many roses have, you know, the same variety on each each type of root yeah, it's a It's a bush knockout, double knockout, I think. 
Okay. Um, then you're going to prune it by about one-third uh, around uh, Labor Day. You're going to prune it by about two-thirds in the spring. Knockouts, unfortunately, are the thirstiest roses out there. So I have to, well, I quit growing them because they took so much water. But I was having to water my knockouts two or three times for every once that I was watering my other roses. So um, the other good thing about about knockouts is that they're usually grown from cuttings rather than being grafted. And that's a good thing. Uh, you could tell me you had the best rose in the world, and if it was a grafted rose, it might be grafted onto a rootstock that was totally unsuitable for your area. I mean, <laughs> excuse me, you can get a, say, peace rose, which is, you know, a, a 75-year-old rose. But uh, you could get that grafted on a rootstock for East Texas. You could get it grafted on a rootstock for California. You could get a rootstock grafted, or you could get it grafted on a rootstock for the Northeast. So um, you've avoided that problem with the knockout because they're almost all cutting grown. So that's not something we're going to worry about. But just lots of water, reasonably good soil. Fertilize it probably monthly if you can, either with a dry fertilizer. It doesn't have to be something that says rose fertilizer either. Just any good purpose fertilizer, whether it's from Medina or Meister Grow or Nature's Creation. Uh, it's going to be an easy plant to take care of. Just watch the watering. And I don't think there are any roses out there that are as floriferous, as free-blooming as knockouts are. So it should give you a lot of pleasure. Um, and if you keep the water up, you'll do well with it. A lot of people in San Antonio let theirs die over the summer because they weren't watering often enough. But uh, this will be a, a good plant for you. Um, do you have deer? Are you down in an area where you got deer? No, I don't have any deer. Lucky you, because they will eat your roses, thorns and all. But, uh, yeah, just uh, any, any, and it'll grow without a lot of soil improvement. Uh, but if you can mix a little compost in, all the better. But uh, it, it would be hard in your soil type to overwater that knockout, so to speak. So water it really thoroughly whenever it's good and dry on the surface. Will do, but I appreciate you more than you know. Thanks, man. Uh, and look up uh, Acres USA. Maybe get a, a year subscription. They do a, I don't even know if they mail one now. I get mine online every month. But uh, that's the organization that uh, has a wide array of information on rotational grazing, books on the subject. And call me back if there's any way I can give you more information. Yeah, hey, will do. I appreciate that very much. I appreciate your call this morning. Thank you, sir. All right, once again, got to get a break in here. Uh, looks like Mark will be up first when we come back. And it looks like I get to talk to you about Medina agriculture. Isn't that fortuitous that we were just talking about the importance of fertilizing? And fertilizing in the fall is the most important time of the year. If you haven't fed your lawn, your trees, your shrubs, everything out there, do it. Because this is the time of year that Fertilizing will help increase the winter hardiness, and it also allows the plants to store the nutrients they need to make a strong burst of growth in the spring. Fertilizer is not instantly used by plants. It's not like we eat a big dinner and we're ready to get something done. It takes time for the plants to, well, for the microbes to break the fertilizer down to substances that the plants can absorb. Then the plants have to prepare that for their next spring's growth. So you don't wait until March to put on the fertilizer for your green spring growth spurt. You put that fertilizer on in October and November. Once again, Medina has great liquid products for your plants in containers, for your vegetable garden, for your flower beds, and great dry granular products for your trees and shrubs and grass. 
just they don't work unless they're out on the soil. Another time, I'll tell you more about their soil builders like Medina Plus and Medina Soil Activator and about some of their great supplements like the orange oil and molasses and uh, liquid seaweed. Medina's just a great company. Check out all their products at medinaag.com. Find those great products at your favorite nursery or garden center. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. Uh, Next two callers are Mark and Paul. Mark is first in line. Good morning, Mark. Morning, sir. How are you doing? Off to a good start. Beautiful day. Yes, sir. sir. Had a few questions. Um, So I sprayed uh, my bell pepper with some neem oil. Um, Uh Is that going to be harmful if we try to eat it or no something like that no neem neem is a it's it's made from an indian tree uh, i would wash you know just as you would with anything else in fact i like cleaning fruit with just a little bit of dilute hydrogen peroxide but it's not something that's going to be harmful to you or family okay and uh i, I planted a peach tree uh where and a um, another tree had died i'm wondering is that is you think that peach tree will be okay <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, the question is, why did the other tree die? Uh, most it was, peaches... It was, it was a really old tree, yeah. Really yeah, and, and that's what I was going to say. Most peaches either dry because of a water issue or because of just age-related things and improper pruning or whatever. I'm not really aware of any diseases uh, that peach trees get. You can have some issues with nematodes on, uh, or with uh, root knot nematodes on the roots, but uh, most peaches are now grafted on something called Nemagard rootstock, which is resistant to problems. So um, I wouldn't plant it right on top the old stump simply because that stump's going to rot away and leave a cavity there. But, you know, if you're a foot or two feet away, there should be no issue whatsoever. Okay, and then uh, my last question: um, What can I do to prevent uh, these uh, these peach borers? Uh, I get them every year. Uh, what do I use to like maybe knock those? In out? the you get them in the fruit, yeah, or in no, the in tree? The, the, uh, in, the, in the tree, yes, sir. Okay, um, it's a sign that the trees are somewhat in stressed. Uh, be sure that you plant the trees high enough that the root flare is exposed. There are some people out there, including some of the county agents, still say, oh, plant it all the way down to the graph point. No, it's important on all fruit trees to plant it, you know, where the root flare is right at the surface. And um, that many times means the grass points four, five, six inches out of the ground, and that's just fine. It'll give you a healthier tree. Um, the... Second thing is that uh, keeping a good mulch around the trees is going to mean you don't have to water as often and going to keep the trees better, and healthier trees are resistant to the borers. And if you ever get the borers, and, and you know, with with drought stress and things like that, uh, it's possible any peach tree can get them, but you can actually spray the trunk of the tree with orange oil. The orange oil will go right through the trunk, kill the borers underneath the bark without harming the tree at all. Okay. Uh, what would be the, the ratio of on that orange oil? Mix it fairly strong, probably about, uh, I'm going to say maybe three ounces per gallon. Three ounces per gallon? Yeah. Okay. 
All right, that's what I need to know. I appreciate that. And and back to the name, um, probably, you know, and you can read on the bottle, once you have sprayed, you probably need to wait four or five days before you pick the fruit. There there should be a short waiting period there, but this is not something that's super toxic and uh, not anything you have to worry about. Uh, next time you have an issue you need to spray for, uh, give me a call, and we'll talk about uh, what is going to be the most effective and the safest thing to control the problem. That'll work. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. I appreciate the call. You have a wonderful day, and I appreciate you. And I tell you what, Paul, we're less than two minutes away from news time here. I don't want to rush you, so uh, you will be up first right after this newscast. Uh, had a lot of fun up in uh, uh, Candelia at the big fire department get-together last night. Next Saturday, there are going to be some other fun things going on. One of them up in San Marcos at the headquarters of the Commemorative Air Force. They're having what they call their hangar dance. You can go to hangardance.org and find all the information there. If uh, you're an old World War II buff or you just appreciate older military aircraft, how about having a good dinner catered by, Black, catered by Black's Barbecue right there in and among the planes that won World War II for us. Uh, anyway, it's called, hang, it's called Hangar Dance, and that's going to be next Saturday. Next Friday, there's going to be a, what I think is a very important uh, remembrance, so to speak, of uh, down at the Vietnam Memorial, down uh, Auditorium Circle, downtown San Antonio. Uh, going to be a fairly brief, uh, brief program there, but, uh, you know, we... We sure do respect and appreciate the people who have fought in the wars, many of them have given their lives for us. And uh, anyway, this uh, this being moving into Veterans Day time, um, that's going to happen next Saturday morning. Oh, I didn't write the time down. I believe it's at 10 o'clock. I'll get that for you. But uh, that's going to be next Friday morning, actually. Hangar dances on Saturday. The other thing is Saturday night is the Volunteer Fire Department Supper up in Sisterdale. So... Anyway, just like to tell you about worthwhile events happening, the Remembrance uh, on Friday, and then the Hangar Dance and uh, the, Ken, or the Sisterdale Fire Department on Saturday as well. This is KTSA. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now, 210-599-5555. All right, let's get back to gardening, and it looks like Paul and Glenn are going to be my next two callers. Paul's first in line. Good morning, Paul. Good morning, Bob. How are you? I'm just off to a good start on a beautiful morning out there. It's uh, I don't know. This is this is kind of days uh, that we that we live in South Texas for. Yeah, you're right. This is this is perfect weather and good timing on the bare root strawberries. I just got mine in, uh-huh. and I'm I'm potting them up. So I got a couple questions on. You got to keep that just the root in the dirt because that nut needs to stick up correct well it needs to be just just right at the ground surface it's called the crown and um you you don't want to actually see the roots i mean you you got to plant carefully you can't plant them at the rate of 50 a minute it's not like putting onions in the ground uh you have to be a little bit more careful but yes the crown should be exposed but you really you really shouldn't see the roots it should you know be just a piece of flat level ground and uh, you'll do it right. It, it's once you get started, it's pretty easy to get it right every time. And then, um, how much light should I put on these? I have a greenhouse and or I have grow lights. I'm potting them up before I put them in the ground for in the spring. Well, 
the strawberries are not really photo period sensitive they're not they don't have to have a day night cycle when you're first getting them started so man i'd leave those lights on 18 hours a day and uh the more light the better now uh, you you know it's it's real easy for a greenhouse to overheat it's kind of like a car in a parking lot on a hot afternoon so um you'll you know it, it's it's kind of uh, you have to walk a fine line between uh having the greenhouse super super bright and having it get overheated so uh it will be important to you know have good air circulation around there but uh uh, this time of year, if I were using my greenhouse to start vegetable plants, I'd probably have the shade cloth completely off. Yes, okay. And um, when you said light sensitive, when I'm starting my tomatoes um, in late winter, um, 18 hours a day, is that too much for tomato no, plants? No, not at all. Okay. It's what, you know, it's, it's what we call the photo period, um, and it's a very complicated <laughs> thing that I don't want to bore you with. But uh, plants respond to how many hours uh, of daylight they get. It's called the phytochrome system. And in many cases, flowering and in some cases, fruit production are dependent on getting whether you have long day plants or short day plants but young plants that you're just starting out photo period doesn't even come into play you want them to grow as fast as possible as sturdy as possible and 18 hours a day is, is just fine okay all right and, and one um, one last thing and you may already know this but the physicist would tell you that light diminishes by the inverse of the square what that means is at two feet you get a fourth as much light as you do at one feet at three feet you get a ninth as much four feet a sixteenth as much and so on uh so you want those bulbs down i presume you have fluorescent uh, grow lights yes uh well yeah. they're uh yeah leds they're about uh okay Probably about 10, 10, 10 inches off the uh, perfect, trucks. perfect. Yeah. Uh, LEDs are so wonderful because they don't put out the heat that incandescents right. do, and uh, uh, of course you can get LEDs in just almost every spectral output. So be sure that you're using the ones that say they are for plants that are putting out a lot in the blue end of the light, and uh, you're doing it right. You've got the bulbs pretty close to the plants, and you should do a good job with them. All righty, appreciate your help. Thank you. Well. It's always a pleasure. I appreciate the call this morning. Uh, next in, all right, I look forward to it. Uh, next in line is Glenn. Good morning, Glenn. Hey, Bob. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, a uh, c- couple of questions. I am I am your typical impatient gardener. <laughs> uh, yep, I, I think those two words go together. Yeah. <laughs> um you know, you're talking about Kendalia a little while ago. I'm about six miles north of there. Has uh-huh. it been cool enough for spinach to come up? Yeah. Because yeah, I'm a little frustrated. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, just watch watch the weather. But uh, we had those nights that were actually down in the 30s and 40s. And what it is is it, we're not as concerned about the air temperature as we are about the soil temperature. And we've had right. enough 
really chilly weather that it, it knocked the soil temperature down pretty well. And uh, I would still soak your seed in a little bit of garret juice for 15 or minutes or so before you plant. But uh, uh, you should get good germination on spinach at this point because even though, you know, yesterday it was close to 80 a day before, these nights are down in the low 50s, and uh, that's going to make your spinach just fine. Yeah, that's, I mean, like, like this morning, it was 52 here. So, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm, I get a little, last year, I just I let some go to seed. Uh-huh. I just didn't worry about it. It pretty much took care of itself and came up on its own. I'm about to decide, you know, why I put the, why I put the <laughs> effort into it if it'll just take care of itself. But, I mean, I'm trying to – I've got one of the little seed trays outside that I'm trying mm-hmm. to start a few in. I also, about two weeks ago, uh, planted some in the ground with lettuce in the same area, and some of the lettuce is coming up, but mm-hmm. uh, no spinach. So, well, anyway. it, oh. if you got if you got good viable seed, it certainly should come up. The one thing I will tell you, and you probably ought to experiment and see what you like better. There, there are two basic kinds of spinach. There's one kind that we call Savoy, S-A-V-O-Y, which is kind of a curly leaf spinach, and then you'll find flat leaf spinaches. And my experience has always been that the flat leaf spinaches produce more at any one time, but they don't produce nearly as late into the spring my flat leaf new zealand and things like that seems like it tends to fade out about the end of february when i'm usually still harvesting you know melody or bloomsdale or one of the savoy types i'm still harvesting that well into may so um fun to plant more than one variety of spinach they all have a good flavor but some of them are going to give you a lot more leaves at one particular time uh, the others don't produce quite as many leaves, but they produce a lot later into the spring. So kind of fun to have more than one kind of spinach out there if you like spinach like I do. Oh, I love it. but I And I don't remember the names of them or, or whatever, but mm-hmm. I've got, I know I've got at least three different kinds. Oh, know. very good. Very good. My other question is something is uh, not bad, but it's, eating on my chard and, and my kohlrabi mm-hmm. and i'm not sure if it's pill bugs or you know maybe some little but i, I mean i've got every you know the sluggo i've got <laughs> diatomaceous earth i've got gasoline so i you know I'm pretty much. <laughs> you, you can tackle anything that comes along uh, go out at night with a flashlight sometime and see if you can catch them in action uh, there is a little green caterpillar called a cabbage worm that will feed on just the foliage of just about any winter vegetable. Uh, you have to be pretty specific. You can spray with spinosad, which will kill the caterpillar if it gets on it. If you want to use uh, a stomach poison, the BT, Bacillus thuringiensis products, work really well against caterpillars. Uh, the other possibility is going to be probably a little beetle of some sort called a flea beetle. Seeing a lot of damage on things from those, and spinosad is probably the best thing to use against the flea beetle. And you mentioned pill bugs, snails and slugs and sow bugs and things like that. Uh, those are also pretty active right now, but your Sluggo Plus should take care of those. But uh, if you don't want to bother with using all three different things, like say, go out at night with a flashlight. That's when they're doing most of their damage, and uh, you can determine what you need to do to get rid of them. 
Okay. Now with the time change, it'll be a little easier to do that since it gets dark earlier. So, uh, (laughs) but it'd be, yeah, it'll be harder to work in the garden. I hate to see the evening daylight go away, but like you say, if you got something you do, got to do in the dark, uh, you won't have to stay up as late to make it happen. But, uh, you call if I can give you any further help or advice, Glenn. All right. Thank you for the help. You're certainly welcome. Thank you. Clint is up next, and then it's going to be Angie. Good morning, Clint. Good morning. How's it going? Uh, it's rocking along on a beautiful Sunday. I wonder if I can get the recipe for making uh, garlic tea. Um, yeah, Garlic tea is usually done with just liquid garlic mixed with water. What are you going to be, what you going to be doing with it? Uh, the fungus, fungus, fungicide, preventative, okay. fungicide, preventative. Yeah. If you're if you're getting a fairly concentrated garlic, uh, if you can make your own, if you have what they call a garlic press, that you literally squeeze the juice out of it. <laughs> Excuse me. It's a lot easier to buy it either under the name of garlic barrier or mosquito barrier. If you're using a purchased product, you will use about two tablespoons to a gallon of water. If you're actually squeezing your own, you will use about a teaspoon per gallon of water. And that's just a foliar spray. It's not phytotoxic at all. You don't have to, you know, worry about what time you spray or anything. It's going to be repellent to insects as well as stimulating of uh, beneficial fungus. Is this going on the avocados or is it going on your garden? Uh, Avocados. Yeah, I, you know, either way, it's not going to take a lot of spray and you need to make it fresh each time you spray, but anything you have left over after you've sprayed the avocados, then go spray it on the spinach or the chard or whatever else you happen to have growing. Okay, so uh, I got one of those little garlic presses for cooking, so just squeeze out a teaspoon per gallon? Yeah, about a teaspoon. You're going to squeeze a lot of little cloves of garlic and you're going to, let's just say it's going to smell like smell like you're in the heart of little italy uh cooking up some good things because it's pretty strong as you uh as you squeeze it but um it sure does work well and it's a great natural thing and how often uh, does that need to be done to suppress any kind of fungus growth and attack i golly starting out i'd probably do it like once a week once you have done it four or five times, you can probably drop back to about once a month. But want to be pretty intensive in getting it started. And then uh, uh, sort of like, you know, you, you get a maintenance spray you're doing a little later. But starting out, uh, you want to use it fairly frequently. Okay, about once a week and start fresh. Yeah, after we talked yesterday, I went and double-checked that avocado where I just squeezed, uh, mashed up a piece of garlic and rubbed it directly mm-hmm. on the uh, brown spot. Right. Now, it hasn't moved. It hasn't gotten bigger or, or anything. So that you're on tells to something me good. Have to, uh, do something. Keep on going with that. So uh, you're on to a good thing, and uh, you keep me posted on how that does. That's something uh, we need to share with lots of folks as you're doing right now. But I want to be sure and tell Howard Garrett about that uh, if you continue to have such good luck with it. Most definitely. And once uh, those uh, spray those t- stick tight. Please die. How long are they going to hang on to a chicken before they fall off? Oh, my guess is two or three weeks, but um, I've got a note here uh, to ask Dr. Kirby, and uh, we'll we'll try to address that pretty early in the show. Okay, because I'm not sure. 
I'd try to pull a few off, and they appeared to be dead. Nothing's moving, but I'm sure there's still a few ones on there. So I was kind of wondering how to, how long it was going to take before I realized well, which was the dead ones. And the yeah, ones. I I just I'm not sure how much tissue you will take along with them when you pull them off, and that's just uh, we don't want to we don't want to stress your chickens uh, while you're doing that. So let me ask the man who knows a lot more about chickens than I do, and we'll get you an answer there, Clint. Okay, well, I appreciate your time. Well, I appreciate your call. Have a wonderful Sunday. And let's see. Angie, I guess I better get a break in here. You'll be up next, but uh, right now I get to take a moment and talk about my friend Dr. Mark Williamson. And once again, people say, well, why do you talk about dentists? Why do you talk about roofing companies? Well, you know, a gardener has to stay in good health, and anything that gives you peace of mind, well, that's a good thing as well. And your oral health is important. In fact, studies show that good oral health will add years to your life, and everybody needs to have a good dentist. Well, Mark Williamson is simply one of the very best you will ever find, and so broadly trained. So many, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying give up your give up your dentist if you're happy with where you are, but maybe you're new to town looking for a good dentist. Uh, maybe your dentist has moved away or retired or whatever. If you want to deal with one of the nicest, most friendly, most competent dentists you've ever encountered, you need to know about Dr. Williamson. He is so broadly trained. I mean, dentists coming out of dental school these days, they're taught if it's more just cleaner filling, send them off to a specialist. Well, Dr. Williamson is that specialist. I can't really imagine any dental problem he can't take care of right there in his office. He is the specialist to keep your oral health in great shape. And by the way, there's no no guilt. If it's been a while since you've been to the dentist, uh, don't worry. He'll get you fixed up and uh, in a very, very friendly, very, very inviting atmosphere. Just an extremely competent person as well. He worked with Dr. Saffel for the last few years of Dr. Saffel's life and career and has, you know, continued with the sedation dentistry, uh, all sorts of ways to make you feel more comfortable in the dental chair. If you're looking for a good dentist, may I suggest you check with Dr. Williamson and Associates. Uh, located right out on Cherry Ridge Drive, just uh, just north of the intersection of 410 and I-10 on the northwest side of town. Uh, they're there to serve you, and he welcomes you to call his office at any time, 341-2569. That's 210 341 2569 for Dr. Williamson and Associates. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening on a day that just looks like it's just made for gardening out there. What a beautiful Sunday morning. Uh, next two callers are Angie and David. Angie's up first. Good morning, Angie. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. My, my daughter got me a pack of native wildflower seeds from Wild Seed Farms in Fredericksburg, and I planted it, Very and it's coming up real nice. But I'm confused about its process of the wild, the, the flower seeds, because when they freeze, what happens? Typically, most wildflowers do not freeze. Um, there oh. are some that, uh, you know, some that are spring blooming will be killed out by the heat of the summer. Some of them just, you know, their life cycle is grow, bloom, go to seed, and die. Uh, there's no way uh -huh. blue bonnets are going to survive through the summer, for instance. But um, right. most all of your wildflowers that start blooming in the fall are cold-hardy forms. 
Um, if we get a really cold winter, the galardias, the so-called Indian blanket, uh, some of those uh-huh. things may freeze back slightly. But Mother Nature has them pretty well programmed. Blue bonnets, which sprout and make their first stage of growth, what they call the rosette, they are totally cold hardy. Um, Indian blanket is, to- I mean, Indian uh, paintbrush is going to be totally cold hardy. So, right. yeah, don't don't really worry about the weather. We're a whole lot more concerned about getting some moisture uh, to get right. them growing and, you know, improve their longevity. But uh, unless we have just incredibly bad winter weather, uh, your wildflowers won't sprout till it's time to. The ones that sprout early are designed to take that weather. So, um, okay, assuming, that's good to know. Yeah, assuming we get good moisture, you should have a beautiful display this spring. Yeah, I've got them in a controlled little area where I'm watering them, and I just didn't okay. know if I had to protect them or not, so thank you for that. No, I, it, let's, I mean, if it goes from 80 to 15, even pansies freeze when that happens, so... Uh, watch that weather but i doubt that that's going to be an issue one thing that you might want to do is throw out a little bit of this uh product called uh sluggo plus it's a totally oh, yeah, safe that. yeah totally safe bait it's based on iron phosphate so it's harmless to people and pets but there are a lot of little creepy crawlies would happily eat your little young wildflower seedlings so since you have these okay. in a contained area rather than 10 acres um I'd maybe throw out a little Slogo Plus every couple of weeks. Okay, thanks. I'll do that. Appreciate it. You're certainly welcome. Anything else I can help you with? Um, I guess I'm just having no luck with my fall tomatoes, but is that a common thing or is it just that's bad a this very year? that's a very common thing. Um it this was this was the year most people got spring tomatoes and I know about one right. out of thirty people that I talk to regularly that's still getting good fall tomatoes. Um your cherries still have plenty of time to uh you know, grow and set more fruit. They're not nearly as affected by uh, nighttime temperature. So if you have Sweet 100s or Sun Golds or Juliets or any of those, don't pull them up. We still could have another month or six weeks of time to produce there. Most of your big-fruited tomatoes have set about all the fruit they're going to set. I would leave the fruit on the plants uh, unless or until it looks like freezing weather is forecast, in which case you'll pick whatever is on their green, and you can ripen them in the windowsill, and they'll still be better than what you buy at the grocery store. So um, it, it's been a tough year on tomatoes. Uh, hopefully next year will be a little better. Yeah, sadly, my Sweet 100s and my um, Sun Golds died in the summer. I don't know what happened. I tried. <laughs> well, 108 degrees doesn't go well. It doesn't go it well brutal. with things. Yeah, I, it would have been nice to have planted a few more of them uh, August or September yep. when the weather kind of broke. But uh, um, kind of like some sports teams are saying right now, wait till the next year. <laughs> we'll yeah, do better. A, never give up. We can That's survive right. that last summer. We are stronger for it. I well, uh, if we can survive last summer, we're strong. There's nothing, That's nothing what I mean. That's about that. But uh, hopefully, hopefully, we'll get back to a little bit more typical summertime temperatures, and gardening will be a lot more fun. Well, thanks for all your help. That keeps me going and on the right direction. Appreciate thanks, it. Thanks, Angie. I appreciate you uh-huh. calling this morning. Have a wonderful Thank Sunday. You. Thank you. you. Goodbye. Goodbye. Uh, David's next. Good morning, David. Morning. How you doing? Good morning. I'm good. How are you today? Oh, I'm, I'm doing my yard work. Ah, uh, it's a good morning to be out there. You can work hard without sweating too much. That's a perfect thing. 
That's true, yeah. I've been out here since 7 o'clock, man. And the further I go, the behinder I get. <laughs> I That's been one of my favorite sayings. Uh, uh, the other one is, the good Lord put me on this earth to accomplish a certain number of things. Right now, I'm so far behind, I'll never die. <laughs> yes, that's true. true. Well, how can I help you today? Can I put that Dina Grand and Grow in my, uh, when, I'm, when I plant uh, my pots in the dirt? I'll be honest with dirt. you, a little bit, yes, and I think it's fine when you plant in containers. But after your plants are up and growing in containers, I like to switch to the liquid Medina has to grow. Oh, but if you want to mix yeah. a little bit of growing green into the soil when you plant, that'll get things off to a great start. But for your follow-up feeding, go with liquid instead of dry. Yeah, I got some of that, too. Yes, sir. Good. Okay. That'll do me for today. You have a nice weekend. You do the same. I appreciate the call. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Goodbye. All right. Well, let's get a break out of the way here so we can get back to the phone lines. Got some open lines, by the way. So if you're having trouble getting through, try right now. 210-599-5555. I get to talk about the freeze miser and that little weather we had last week when it got down in the 30s, actually got down below freezing where I live up in the hill country. That's a reminder of what wintertime can do. And every year, the plumbers get make a lot of money fixing broken hydrants and broken water lines where people, you know, let the pipes freeze and break. Well, that's what the freeze miser is here to prevent. And what is a freeze miser? If you've never heard about it, it's a very neat little device that uh, no batteries, no wires, anything like that. Just some really magical chemistry inside. You put it on your hydrants. Uh, I put it on, you know, my well. I use them on my water hydrants outside. You put them on and then you turn the water on. Nothing happens. They stay totally dripless, but they monitor the temperature of the water inside the pipe, not the air temperature. That's not what counts. Temperature of the water in the pipe is what counts. And when it starts dropping into the 30s, where there's a danger of freezing and breaking, well, guess what? It starts dripping your hydrant automatically. Then it's going to shut off the next morning when things warm up. These things are truly remarkable, and they really do work. Uh, if you have a hydrant that you regularly water with, uh, that's real easy, too. Just put a little Y connector on there, put your freeze miser on one side, put your garden hose on the other side, and it just takes the worry out of it. Maybe you're out hunting in the hill country. You've got a place you hunt up there, but you don't be running up there in the middle of the night when they predict a freeze. You can put the freeze miser on, leave it on all winter. Same thing for your fishing cabin down on the coast. Freeze misers are absolutely remarkable. If you want to see how they work, go to freezemiser.com. You're not going to find them in the box stores, but uh, you'll find them in good nurseries, good independent hardware stores. They're called the Freeze Miser. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. My next three callers are Eddie, Nikki, and Gene. Eddie's first in line. Good morning, Eddie. Hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you today? Good. Uh, all right, so I put in a, a new yard uh, 20 years ago with uh, St. Augustine grass, and I, I bought a bunch of trees that I took home in the back of my car and planted them, red oaks, ornamental pears, uh, a couple others. Uh, so fast forward to today. Uh, and those are, you know, the, if I'm saying it right, deciduous trees, they lose their right. leaves and the trees right. have now gotten 30, 40 feet 
as as the years went by, the St. Augustine grass kept getting thinner and thinner, and then mm-hmm. last year was the was basically the end of it. Um, so this summer, I I tried planting St. Augustine kind of in a checkered pattern, and it, you know it, that didn't really work. And then I went to the box store and bought a bag of seeds for dense shade, uh, and and that grass was incredibly thin and small and doesn't spread. Right. So I finally I went with zoysia. I, I'm just, just as an experiment. I put out 50 pieces and I put them tight together. I'm trying to see if that works. But my question to you is, I, I've got this big area. I, I'd say you know 40 by 50 feet that are mm-hmm. uh, under that canopy of trees, if you will. What what are my options if grass? I've learned there's no such thing as grass that doesn't need sun. <laughs> and every, you've and you've learned the hard. Yeah, you've you've learned the hard way. Um, there is such a thing as you know, so little light that no grass will grow. Uh, the best variety of grass for a shady spot, the best two varieties are varieties of St. Augustine. One of them is called Palmetto. The other one is called Delmar. But there are areas that are too shady even for those. Now, one thing you can do if you just want something green out there for the winter months, you can. Uh, plant from seed. You can plant what we call perennial rye. It's not really perennial, but it will grow in the shade. It grows a little taller than it does in the sun. But if you've got a mud issue, I'd sure think about putting out some perennial rye seed. Long term, um, you may just have to accept the fact that it's too shady for grass, but that opens up all sorts of other possibilities. You can create beds of perennials. Uh, there are many different, even flowering, beautiful things that will grow in the shade. You can plant ground covers like Asiatic jasmine, like English ivy, like Vinca major. These things are actually a lot easier to take care of than grass is because they don't have to be mowed and they're not susceptible to as many different insect and disease problems. Um, They are a little slower to get started. The old saying about ground covers is the first year they sleep, second year they creep, and the third year they leap. So more than anything, I would tell you to... You know, again, if you want to try a little bit of St. Augustine, try either the Palma, uh, Palmetto or Del Mar. But I would spend some time driving around, looking at shady yards, looking maybe down at the Botanical Garden in shady areas, at the uh, Bishop's Garden down or the Diocese Garden down there off of... Uh, What is it, Castano or down in that area? But look around in shady areas and decide what you and your family like. And uh, you can create beautiful things. You know, you can plant aspidistra, you can plant holly fern, you can plant a cuba. uh, You can plant flowering plants like a number of different salvias. If you want just some color for the wintertime, you can plant primrose, you can plant ornamental kale and cabbage, you can plant cyclamen. Uh, There are a lot of things that will do well in the shade, but um, you've just created an area that's just on the borderline or maybe just across the border of just too shady for your grass. And uh, so first thing to do is make a plan. Figure out what you like. I mean, if you want to create a really beautiful area, you might even change the contour. You might berm up an area or two here or there. But uh, some of the prettiest gardens on earth are our shade gardens. So um, it, it just depends on what you and your family like. I appreciate it. That helps a lot. Thank you. If you if you want something that looks like grass but extremely low maintenance, there's something called dwarf mondo grass or dwarf monkey grass. 
dark green, very grass-like, only grows about three inches tall. Um, it will grow in deep shade. I've seen beautiful areas of it done where you don't want to be walking on it that much, but, you know, any kind of ground server, put down some flagstone, put down something attractive to make it possible for you to walk through the area and still use the area. Um, you could also just put a pathway of decomposed granite or something like that in there if this is an area where you walk your dogs and things like that. But um, it's going to be a little bit of a challenge but you're going to have something a lot prettier than just a, a patch of green grass when you get through with it. And if you want a list, if you're ever over in our neighborhood, we have a list we'll happily give you. It's just a list of all the things that do well in the shade because it really is such a common problem. All right. Thank you. You're certainly welcome. Great question, Eddie. I appreciate the call. Uh, let's see here. Yeah, we've got time for another call or two before we take a break. Nikki is next in line. Good morning, Nikki. I think it's Vicky. <laughs> Vicky, well, I'll, I'll just Vicky. change this into a V. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, how's Vicky today? I, yeah. I, oh, I'm doing good, doing good. I am asking about, I've got a couple of pecan trees that have been in the ground for, and I'm so bad about how tall they are. Okay. And I just wonder, how do you tell if they're, Still alive or not they they are definitely in the path of full sun all day long i put mm-hmm. i've got chickens so i had to put a little cage around them like probably three foot out i put okay. uh, grass and mesquite tree droppings and mesquite beans and i tried to keep it away from the trunk you know like at least six inches uh-huh and i would lay the hose like out out what do you call it, the drip line? Yep, yep. And that's the way I watered it most of the time. Okay. But how long they, How long has the tree been planted? Uh, One year, five I, years, I, ten I would, years? No, I would say at least three. At okay. At least three for sure. And but now what, I'm noticing like on, okay, go ahead. What what happened to the leaves? Did they just turn brown and drop off? Did they turn brown and stay on the tree? When did the tree lose its leaves? Well, I think it was probably like in the middle of, you know, in all this heat. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, one of them, it, it dropped them, and then it put on some new ones. And the one I'm looking at has nothing on it anymore. Okay. And then the other one, it... It has leaves on it that have turned brown, but they're staying on it. But it okay. also has, like, underneath the first, on the trunk, underneath the first limb that I'd say is waist high, there's a patch that's probably an inch and a half wide by another inch and a half long where the, the bark has come off. Okay. Fairly thick piece of bark, and there's yep. two or three other places like that. Well, the good news and the bad news. Um, When a tree, any kind of tree, pecan or oak or anything else, when the leaves turn brown and stay on the tree, that's a very bad sign. A lot of times that tree is completely dead. I wouldn't cut it down quite yet. I would certainly give it till spring, and then I'm going to tell you a couple other things you can do that will help. Um, When trees have leaves that yellow and drop, 
in a high stress period like this summer was, a lot of times that tree is simply conserving moisture, it's dropping its leaves, and it's probably going to come back out next spring uh, without any problems. So I, you, you may have a mixed bag there. You may have some, you may have one tree at least that, that truly is dead, but you may have, you know, others that are going to come back out. What I would do for all of them, uh, in the next, you know, two, three months is, you know, watch your watering. Pecan trees want to be watered regularly, but they don't want to ever stand in water. So when you water those trees, you really need to flood them. And actually, you want to water them closer to the trunk. Nutrients we tend to put out toward the drip line. The water we tend to put out within 10 feet of the trunk of the tree. And when you water, you want to really thoroughly saturate that soil. Then you want to let the soil get dry an inch deep or so before you water again. So that's your basic watering. But right now, in addition to that, uh, you could once a day, you could do it as often as you could. Just pick up the hose and spray up and down the trunk of the tree because they will absorb a good deal of moisture directly through the bark. I've seen trees that I thought were dead that actually survived and came back out. It's sort of like getting an IV. Um, the roots are damaged from the drought, from the heat, but just every time you're out there working with your chickens, you know, pick up the hose and just spray up and down the trunks of those trees. We're not really going to know until next spring, you know, how much is dead, how much is alive. Hopefully the trees are going to sprout out and hopefully to be fairly high up, but it may be from well down the trunk, depending on how badly they suffered this summer. But there's, there's no one easy test that says, I mean, you can't take its pulse, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and But the fact that, you know, several of your trees drop their leaves after they turned uh, yellow or brown, that's a good sign. And those trees are probably going to come out. I'm going to be a little more reserved in the outlook for you, one that, where the leaves turn brown and stayed on the tree. But um, mm -hmm. do spray, again, do water up and down the trunk and the limbs of the tree. Periodically, when you are putting moisture on the ground, and I do this maybe once a month. There's a product out there called Super Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E. It looks and reads like snake oil, but I have seen that bring back to life plants that I thought were dead. My first experience with it, I worked with a nurseryman up in the hill country. we gotten in a shipment of rooted cuttings that had got delayed in shipping, and they were just shriveled up brown twigs. I thought they were all dead, and I said, Alton, what are we going to do? He said, oh, we'll pot them up and water them with Super Thrive. Out of 300 cuttings, 298 of them sprouted and grew. So I'm a wow. big fan of Super Thrive, and, you know, it it won't bring the dead back to life, but uh, it, it I've seen it save things that look really bad. It's uh, the, the bottle reads like snake oil, but it is uh, it is a good good material. You just use a little bit of it, like a cap full of it, a watering can full of water. I would use that. I'd get a little bottle of it and uh, use it about once a month on all of those trees. Use it on anything in the landscape. The things that are really stressed is where it really shines. There's also a product out there called Garrett, G-A-R-R-E-T-T, -T, like Howard Garrett, right. uh, a formulation he came up with. You can get the formula and mix it yourself off of the off of his website, which is dirtdoctor.com, or Medina packages it and sells it already made up. A little Garrett juice would help, but uh, those are all things, Those that, that sort of intensive care 101 for summer stress trees, and uh, uh, like I say, it's going to be, you know, pecans don't usually come out till April or so, 
And it's going to be that long before we know for sure what's dead and what's alive. Well, there, uh, we have three of them that we planted at the same time, like mm-hmm. in a triangle pattern. And this other one, and, I, and like I said, I'm really bad. I would say it's 40 feet across, 40 feet from each other. And this uh-huh. other one, I have actually had mounted a chicken waterer thing. So there's uh-huh. a, there was always a drip, and then I put mm-hmm. a big pan under it for when the heat, the chickens would stand in that huge pan of dripping <laughs> water. And that particular tree still has green leaves on it. Yeah. Well, which and, tells you that, um, and, and pecan trees are weird. I see when pecans are young don't have a lot of foliage. I see people kill them with too, too watering them too often. But once they're established, and, and again, pecans are interesting trees. Uh, I've got some in one of my pastures near my house that, uh, oh, the trunk must be three feet through. And you wouldn't even know that, uh, you know, that they were in drought. They are solid leaves and lots of pecans. I have a couple of them over by a creek. Those trees always had water, and they didn't develop as good a root system. Then when the creek dried up, and it's dried up for a month or so in the past, but it's been dry for two years, and uh, there are trees that, you know, some of them may die. They look absolutely horrible because those trees just didn't develop the, didn't have to develop as widespread a root system to support themselves. So pecans are weird, and it's hard to, you know, say anything for sure on them. But the Super Thrive, the watering the the bark is going to be the best thing to help. And uh, we'll just keep our fingers crossed that uh, those trees come back out next spring. I sure hope so. I sure hope so. I hate to lose them. But anyway. Well, keep me posted, Vicki. I want to know how they do for you. And if you have any more questions, I'm always here to answer them for you. I will go get my bottle of Super Thrive right now. (laughs) Sounds good, Vicki. Appreciate the call. Thank you. Thank you very much. Goodbye. All right, quick break here, and uh, then it'll be Gene. I get to talk to you for a moment about my friend Sam Sitterly, Green Grow Organics. And uh, uh, Sam just, you know, he's been doing this for between 30 and 40 years now. Just a great guy, always done things organically, and so knowledgeable about what plants need to survive and do well, so knowledgeable about collect correcting problems for years now i've told you about his service where he will you call him he'll come out and even set up a you know consultation on a regular basis if you like and uh, he still does a lot of that but his new program because so many people would like to have not to not to have to remember to call him every quarter to come out and do things he'll set up a program just like these chemical pushers where he'll schedule to come out once a quarter and take care of the fertilizing on an annual basis, he tends to add minerals. He uses beneficial nematodes as necessary. And he does all this automatically, but you don't have to sign any contracts. You're not obligated to anything. But you just don't, just don't have to remember. Uh, don't be tempted by those chemical pushers that want to come around and spray poisons on your yard. I've had some conversations with the listener the past couple of weekends where one of those uh, poison users companies, well, they got the address wrong. They came over and poisoned her yard, and now she's looking at quite a, quite a process to get rid of all the toxic stuff they put out. Don't fall for that. If you want somebody to come around and do it right using or only organic problems, you need to know about Sam Sitterly and Green Grow Organics. Go to the website, greengroworganics.com. 
Give Sam a call if you'd like, 210-599-5565, 210-599-5565, Sam Sitterly, Green Grow Organics. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster, News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening, and the next two callers are Gene and Jerry. Gene's up first. Good morning, Gene. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. All I had was a question about my little plumeria. I've uh, I've never had good luck growing in pots, and I bought this little thing at uh, HEB about oh three months or so ago. Uh-huh. I got it so far, I got it so far come up about a foot and a half, and it's doing really good. Uh, it sounds <laughs> so, like your uh, luck has changed. Your skill is increasing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the only thing is a little card sticking in the pot said, keep dry in the winter. And uh, what does that mean? Don't water it at all? Bring it indoors, of course, but don't water it or what? Right. Keep it in bright light. Some plumerias will drop all their leaves. In fact, a lot of people, you know, will keep them dry, let them drop their leaves, and then just literally hang them up in the garage for the winter. Um, I think that you'll get, you'll have healthier plants, and you can even get some flowers late into the year if you treat them like a house plant. Uh, if they do drop their leaves, which is not uncommon, then you can cut back on your watering. You don't ever want to let them get bone dry, but obviously the way plants transpire, they take moisture up through the roots and then they release it out through the leaves. If those leaves drop off, which they do on lots of plumerias in the winter, the plant's not going to be using as much water, so you won't have to water it nearly as often but i you know whether it's plumerias orchids or anything my rule year round is just water it thoroughly when you water when that soil dry feels dry about a knuckle deep water it thoroughly again if you will do that with your little plumeria there it's going to grow more and bloom more than it ever has before okay well that answered that question uh and another dumb little question probably a lot of people wanted to ask, but never wanted to call. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're taking me back to my days of teaching freshman biology. I always told them, if you have a, stu- a question you think is stupid, I think that probably two-thirds of the class is waiting for an answer to that. So please, <laughs> ask me your question. <laughs> now, how do you measure a flower pot, from the top, bottom, or in the middle? You typically... Um, uh, that's that's a great question. You typically measure measure the inside diameter at the top. Uh, so you're going to have a four inch, a five inch, a six inch, an eight and a half inch, whatever. And those measurements are approximately uh, are approximate. But that's the measure across the top. And when you talk about a six inch pot, you're talking about the diameter. But the height of the pot is important, but nobody expresses that in, in inches. If it's a short pot, they call it a bulb pot. If it's a medium-high pot, they call it an azalea pot. And if it's a you know regular-sized pot, then it's called a standard pot. So you may see 8-inch bulb pans, 8-inch azalea pots, 8-inch uh, standard pots, and they're all the same diameter but the height of the pot varies, but nobody expresses that in, in, in inches. They always talk about, you know, bulb pots or bulb pans, azalea pots, and standard pots. Uh, when you see a number associated with a pot, that's generally the inside diameter across the top of the pot. Does that help? That, that helps. I got a, 
a pot that is a real drastic change from the top to the bottom in size. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's why I was wondering. Well, uh, when okay. it's ceramic pots, uh, you know, anything goes. When it's clay pots, they're a little more standardized usually. Yeah. All right. Well, I sure appreciate it, Bob. Well, I appreciate the call this morning. You get out and have a good Sunday. And, uh, Jerry, hang on just a second. I'm just seconds away from news. You'll be up first after the news. I uh, enjoy and appreciate you being here this morning listening to KTSA Radio in San Antonio, Texas. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right. Jimmy tells me we have some open lines. So uh, if you've been getting a busy signal, it'll be a great time to dial. You just heard the number, 210-599-5555. And next in line, in fact, the only person I've got waiting is Jerry. Good morning, Jerry. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. This is not the reason I called, but when the man was talking about plumeria, yes. I just cut mine off and stick it in a pot, and it grows. Mm-hmm. So, is that that that? But it doesn't bloom. It well, blooms very little. Uh, they if they're not blooming, they're either too young or they're not getting enough sunlight. Plumeria is like really hot, bright, direct sun. And the ones that you are growing from cuttings, those probably, or just pieces you've broken off, um, those are probably mature. And if they're not blooming, then they, they probably need a little bit more sunlight. A lot of people, yeah, a lot of people, you know, the plumeria tends to set a seed pod pretty easily. And they usually have three or four fairly large black seed in there. And it's just lots of fun. Uh, they grow easily from seed. It's easy to get a new plumeria started from seed, but yeah. they have to be about three years old before they bloom for the first time. Yeah, I think that's what one of them is, the big one that's like five feet tall. Uh-huh. And, but in the corner of the patio, and it gets filtered sunlight. Yeah, no, it wants to be out where it gets direct sun. So it needs to be moved. But the main reason I'm calling is we have – well, one oak tree died. It just—it's like the bark split on it, mm-hmm. and it just died several years ago. And then another one, but it lived. The bark split on it. Uh huh. Still has bar, but it lived, and it's—it's it's really tall now. But the limbs grow down. Mm-hmm. When can I cut those down? Well. First of all, the initial bark splitting may very well have been from a lightning strike. Um, It's amazing how often trees get hit by lightning, and sometimes it kills them, sometimes it doesn't. But um, that that, that may be where, you know, what killed the one. But, you know, every lightning bolt is different, and every tree is affected differently, and I don't have two hours to go into all the reasons. But... Um, realize that it is perfectly normal. The reason that oak trees have limbs that grow down is that they are trying to shade the ground. They want their root system to be cooler, and that's why these big old majestic oaks that you see usually have tree or usually have limbs that are fairly close to the ground. So, don't get too carried away. I certainly believe in trimming them to the point that you can live and play underneath them, but... Um, yeah, we, you, 
pole under them because they're hanging down too low. You can't ride with the mower under them. Oh, okay. Well, you can you can prune those any time of the year, but it is very important uh, to paint the wounds. Doesn't have to be pruning paint. It can be just plain old ordinary spray paint, whatever you okay. like, because the wound only has to be sealed for about ten days. And after that, it's sealed off to the point that uh, that it, it can't be affected by oak wilt. But um, I, there's not a bad time. You can you can prune okay. oak trees 365 days a year. But don't let anyone tell you that if you prune in the middle of winter, you don't have to paint the wounds. Because the little beetles that spread oak wilt, yeah, they're out 12 months out of the year. And we can go from 20 degrees to 80 degrees, as you obviously yeah. know if you've yeah. lived here very long. But uh, you, yeah, you trim those limbs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, you trim those limbs whenever it's convenient for you. Just be sure that any wound, no matter how large or small, gets coated. Okay, because the limbs, they're not big at all. Maybe a half uh -huh. an inch. Yeah. They're just, you know, hanging down like a canopy. It looks like a weeping willow. Just about. Well, okay. even right. at half an inch, you need to seal those wounds, but you can get out and trim them this afternoon if you like. It's going to be a beautiful day to be outside. I'll go out there right now. <laughs> Just I take the radio it. with you. Might, might have something yeah. interesting comes on a little later. <laughs> Thank okay. you, Jerry. All right. I, I appreciate the call. Thank you. All right. Uh, my next two callers are Laurie and John. Laurie is up first. Good morning, Laurie. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Off I to a was at your shop. Oh, good, 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 good. I was at your shop like a weekend ago or so, and you and I had a nice chat, and I forgot to ask you about what I need to do with hibiscus. We have a hibiscus that we did put in a bigger pot, but we don't know. He looks just weak and sad, and I've fertilized him with the you know has to grow i've used spinosad to make sure the bugs aren't eating him anymore but i don't know what does he need sun shade um and is this a what what color are the flowers on this hibiscus they're orangey red. i'm here with melissa and she says they're orangey red okay um that is a tropical hibiscus and it, the the perfect place for that plant would be sun in the morning, shade in the afternoon. Uh, it will tolerate full sun if you keep it adequately watered. But uh, it needs at least half a day of sun. But uh, it, it likes a little protection. The flowers especially, the flowers will last longer. They still only last a single day. But the flowers will last longer and stay prettier if they get a little protection from that just burning afternoon sun. But the main thing about tropical hibiscus, they like to be watered very regularly. Um, we end up, you know, lots of times in the summer, we always water when the soil's dry on the surface. But the kind of summer we had this year, that was probably every day. And the way to do it is water thoroughly, let the soil get dry about a knuckle deep, and then water thoroughly again. As far as fertilizing, I like a liquid fertilizer. And on tropical hibiscus, I'll be doing it about once a month. So... Uh, do those two things, and they should do very well. And maybe the maybe the most important thing, seeing as how this plant is in a pot, is be sure that when you water it, you really, really, really soak it. There's no such thing as too much water at any one time. You can do it too often, but most of the roots of that plant are all the way in the bottom of the pot, and if you're not getting those thoroughly saturated every time you water your plant's not going to look very good, and it's not going to bloom very well. So 
Uh, there's no such thing as too much water at any one time. So really flood it when you water it, and then just feel that soil. When it's dry about a knuckle deep, it's time to water again. Okay, real quick. We did put it in a bigger pot because mm-hmm. uh, he was just being squeezed out. And I know we don't want to always do that. But uh, do you think I put some of that good liquid, uh, you know, kind of root stimulator stuff in there? Um, do you think he's just kind of weak right now from being shocked from moving from one pot to the next? It certainly could be. And what size pot was it in before you transplanted it? I would say a medium, and now he's in like a large, extra large. So did he go from a 6-inch pot to a 12-inch pot or from a 6-inch pot to an 8-inch pot? Well, he really went from probably a 12-inch pot to a 36-inch pot. And see, that's a problem. Um, Plants, when you do need to repot, it's much better if you move them up gradually. Um, if it was in a 12-inch pot, it probably should have gone into a 16-inch pot for a year or two, and then it might go into a 22-inch pot for a year or two, and then it might go into the whiskey barrel. But uh, it takes uh-huh. it, it's hard to keep them properly watered when you have a small plant in a great big pot, and it takes them quite a bit of time to really fill that pot out. So. It's probably just just getting used to that big pot. It's going to be very important that when you water that you feel the soil at the base of the plant, not out toward the edge of the pot, because that pot's not going to dry out evenly. And um, uh, I, I'm pretty sure that's what the problem okay. is. It, it just went from a too small a pot to too big a pot. It should get through that. It's going to be a lot harder to move it in for the winter. Um, and get one of get one of those little coasters or something you can roll it around on because tropical hibiscus will not take freezing weather. But I, in the future, you know, we we need to do that stepping up in stages rather than from very small to very large. Okay, well we've got him on life support, and I, I'm uh, uh, positive we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna survive. Thank you so much, Bob. Awesome. Very good, Laurie. Uh, it's a pleasure to help you. You call any time. Um, let's take one more call, and that would be John. Good morning, John. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. My first question is, what time is it? <laughs> it's gardening time, ten fourteen in the morning, if uh, you forgot to turn your clock back. Okay, now, second question. I found some lantana, the yellow and gold native, uh-huh. and one was a little bushy plant. I got it up in the spade shovel and carried it to the hole where I was, mm-hmm. I'm trying to make a hedge about every two feet. And uh, another one I found in the grapevines on the fence, and I just reached in with my hand and ripped out what looked like a, a runner, and there were... Uh, stems coming up off the runner so i cut the runner and it had roots it had roots okay so what uh i i think you answered the question earlier with super thrive mm-hmm. what uh what else i just got them in a uh, little about like an eight inch hole well lantana is a plant um and and the yellow and the red and the orange ones these are bushing lantanas then we have trailing lantanas so there's a white form and a purple form the trailing lantanas are much more cold hardy and they tend to bloom spring and fall and 
those you can plant almost any time. The yellows and reds and oranges, they are an upright lantana that typically freezes back to the ground in the winter months and then comes back out again. The fact that these plants have just gone through the shock of being transplanted, um, there's no guarantee if they freeze down, they may very well just die. If they're plants you really want to protect or if you want to keep, I would say don't plant them in the ground. Plant them in a pot so that you can bring them inside when it gets really cold. Plant them out next spring, and that will give them the whole year to get established. After that, they can stay out through, you know, whatever the weather throws at us, especially if you mulch them. But uh, these are tender little babies that if uh, if it gets real cold within the next month or two, they're not going to be happy. So, um I, both of them are good plants. Both of them have the potential to do well over time. But planting them in the ground this late in the season uh, where they're not going to have much time to get a good root system established, uh, I, I, I don't think that would be a good idea. If Transplanting this late, transplanting in November, much better to keep them in a pot through the winter and then put them in their permanent home next spring. All right. That doesn't look like it's going to be possible, but I can mulch. I yeah, mulch and, and even, you know, cover. Get a little insulator or something like that. Super Thrive is a good idea. Garrett Juice is a good idea. But, um, uh, again, I'd try to keep them from freezing back until they have some time to, you know, absorb some energy to get some roots started. So, yeah, do mulch them and uh, do cover them if we get, the, you know, hard freezing weather between now and the first of the year. By the time January gets here, they're probably going to be, pretty well established but you know for the next month or two they're they're kind of like being stuck outside without a jacket well i thought they were a little bit hardier oh the the monarch butterflies are coming through oh yeah uh they are beautiful but yeah lantana is a hardy plant but hardy once established when it's first planted it's a little little tender well we'll see what happens <laughs> All right, John. Well, listen, I appreciate the call. You get out and have a good Sunday. All right. Thanks. Bye. Thank, thank you, sir. Goodbye. Jimmy, I guess we better get a break in, and then we'll come back and take some more phone calls. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening and back to the phone lines. It looks like we're going to talk to Kay and Michael and Annette. Kay is first in line. Good morning, Kay. Hello. Hello there. Good morning. Kay, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Jimmy sounds like she's got some phone problems. Why don't we put Kay back on hold for a moment and talk to Michael. We'll come back to Kay in a second. Uh, good morning, Michael. Good morning, Bob. How are you again today? <laughs> Just another beautiful day that I'm looking forward to. Man, it is. Hey, you know, every time I turn you on, I think of a, a question, so I'm sorry to bug you all the time. Uh, it's hey, not what? bugging me. That's that's what I do on Saturday and Sunday mornings, and uh, I appreciate the call. I'd I'd rather have a dialogue than a monologue any day. Okay. Hey, what can you tell me about agaritas? I uh, I keep trying to transplant them from the wild because I want to incorporate them into my landscaping. Uh huh. But I can never get them to take. Um, is there a certain time of year, or you know? Well, 
Agarita are different. Yeah, they're they're typically they are a plant that is hard to transplant, and because they typically grow in really crummy soil, the root system is really widespread. So when you try to dig one, you're only getting a very small portion of the root system, and I, even the pros probably lose half of what they try to transplant. Uh, if you're going to transplant them from the wild, find the smallest, tiniest little plants you can find, and you'll have a much better chance of transplanting them successfully. Um, you can always, uh, and this will be more in the spring than this time of year, but they aren't that hard to grow from seed. You know, collect some of those red berries, uh, let them, put them in some garret juice probably for an hour before you plant them, and you'll find they grow much easier from seed than they do, you know, to be transplanted. Now, and like I say, if you want to transplant them, Try to pick one growing in the best soil that you can find because that way you're going to get a higher percentage of the root system when you dig it and try to find a small little plant. I'd be looking for a plant that's less than six inches tall if I was trying to transplant it from the wild. Did you say put it in carrot juice? Garrett, G-A-R-R-E-T-T. Oh. Need to enunciate. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I need to enunciate a little better. And and people people do make they say, I've never heard of carrot juice. No. It's uh, you don't go to the health food store. You go to the nursery. But uh, Howard Garrett is the man who is known as the Dirt Doctor. He's syndicated on radio all across the country. We had the pleasure of visiting with him at uh, uh, the eight o'clock segment of my show on Saturday mornings. But in a good nursery, you'll find a little bottle of something called Garrett juice, and it's a great thing when you have a really hard seed. When you have a seed that might normally have to pass through an animal's intestine before it will germinate and grow. Soaking it for 15 to 30 minutes uh, in a solution of the Garrett juice will many times give you a much higher percentage of germination much more quickly. Wow, okay. Yeah, I mean, because we collect a lot of agarita berries from the wild, uh -huh. and when we put them through to, like, make jelly or sauce uh -huh. or whatever, we have handfuls of seeds. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do I wash them, dry them out? What, or do I just, what do I have? How do you go from seed in the wild to in the ground uh, plant? Well, and agarita make a lot of seed, and only a few of them sprout and grow. So it's obvious that they are a little bit more difficult to germinate. But what you want to do, I mean, you can plant them. That, that jelly is made to give the new plant some nutrition as it germinates and grows. So you don't have to do anything really other than, than soaking it. But if you, as long as you haven't boiled your seed, as long as you haven't, you know, put it in a food processor or anything like that. Um, you can, you know, you can enjoy the jelly off of it for anything from wine to jam, and then just plant the seed that's left behind. It's, it's totally up to you. Um, I think you probably have a better chance of germinating it actually if you do, you know, take it without the jelly on it, soak it like say in garret juice, and then plant that. That seems to be. Um, it just you should have probably at least 80% success in growing them. Okay. Well, sounds good. I'll, I'll go look for that and then try that. Can I think you'll be... Yeah, I think you'll be. Uh, I, I think you'll be much more successful. We we have a, a big commercial grower here, and he's always begging for agarita berries. And uh, I know that he's just, you know, he's probably just 
putting them, you know, one way or another, uh, giving them a good soak, getting most of the jelly off the outside and planting the seed itself. So give it a try whenever you find some, you know, whether the berries, don't don't get them too green. Go ahead and get them once they've ripened or once they're just a little bit past being ripe. But uh, since you use them for culinary purposes, the seed that's your byproduct should be just fine to uh, plant out. Now, does it hurt them if we have frozen the, the berries whole? Um, I a light freeze, no. If we have a you know a winter like twenty one when we got down in single digits and stayed there for a week's time, yeah, that's probably going to hurt them. There are actually some types of seeds out there that you freeze them before you plant them, but agarita is not one of them. Um, mild freeze not going to have any impact on the seed, but a prolonged hard freeze, yes, that will very definitely reduce the percentage of germination. Yeah, because I've probably got three pounds of berries in the freezer right now. So yeah, no, that's you're not not going to have any luck with those. Okay, very good, man. Appreciate it. You let me know how you do. I'll look forward to hearing from you. You have a blessed week. Thank you. You Bye. too, Michael. Thank you. Uh Jimmy, do we still have Kay? Should we try her again? Yep, let's go for it. All right. Good morning, Kay. Hi. Can you hear me? I hear you loud and clearly now. Oh, thank goodness. I'm sorry. I apologize. I'm driving. Uh, but uh, two quick questions. I have seeds that are about two years old. They're the poppy seeds, like the poppies that grow in Castorville. Right. And I have some sweet pea bush seeds, also about two years old. They've been kept in the house. I'm wondering if, one, they're still good, and two, when can I plant them? Well, they are probably still good. If you find that you're going to have seed that you want to save, uh, you can actually keep it from several for several years if you do this. Put it in a regular paper envelope, and then put that envelope, uh, put it in a mason jar or something like that. Keep it in the refrigerator. You don't want to just keep the envelope in the refrigerator because our modern refrigerators are so low humidity, the seed doesn't keep for very long. But uh, back in my refrigerator, I've probably got more jars of seeds than I do jars of things to eat. And that way you can, you know, you can... Um, uh, keep them for several years if you need to. Your poppy seed should be planted right away. It needs to be planted in the fall for it to grow and bloom in the spring. And what was the other type of seed you have? Sweet peas. The flowers. Sweet peas. Yeah, sweet peas are, ah, they are best planted either in the early fall or just toward the end of winter. They really don't like a hard, hard freeze. Um, but neither do they like summer's heat. I would probably plant them about the end of February, the 1st of March, uh, is when you're going to have the best chance to have them get up and grow and bloom and uh, do well before the heat really hits. Uh, if it's still really cold in February, wait until the 1st of March. If we have a more typical year and things are starting to warm up, sometime around Valentine's Day will probably be a fine time to plant. Okay, that sounds wonderful. Thank you so much. Well, I'm glad we got you back on, Kay. You be safe driving out there, and we'll talk again. Um, I guess we better take a break here. Annette, you will be up next. Uh, but Jimmy, run those commercials so we can get back to talking to people. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. 
All right, back to gardening on a gorgeous Sunday morning out there. Oh, I tell you what, don't don't spend a day inside. <laughs> you know, there's nothing on TV that's going to beat what uh, you'll see in nature. Just get out and enjoy. Uh, let me tell you real quickly, a couple of things coming up. Next Friday uh, morning, I believe it's about 10 o'clock, down at the uh, Veterans uh, Memorial, the uh, Vietnam Memorial downtown Auditorium Circle area. Uh, kind of kicking off uh, this season, approaching Veterans Day, going to have a, a rededication, just a, a memorial service, probably pretty brief, about 30 minutes. But, uh, you know, we're at the age that, well, some of us uh, were about about of military age when Vietnam came around. Other folks have parents or kids that uh, went through the Vietnam War or other wars, and uh, just this is going to be a, a great ceremony of remembrance, and uh, that's going to be next uh, Friday morning. Saturday, Saturday evening, if you want to go support a volunteer fire department, Sisterdale Volunteer Fire Department will serve you some good barbecue, probably some good shrimp, and uh, they have usually a very good raffle up there, and uh, that'll be next Saturday evening. The other really fun thing is if you're a World War II buff, if you're into vintage aircraft and things like that, well, the commemorative Air Force used to be called the Confederate Air Force. Now it's called the Commemorative Air Force. Their base is up in San Marcos, and they do what's called a hangar dance. It's an evening of dining and dancing. This year catered by Black's Barbecue. You know how special that is. But uh, that takes place next Saturday evening. I'll let you simply Google hangardance.org. Uh, I believe it's .org, not .com. But do, Google hangardance.org. You'll see all the details be a really fun thing to do next Saturday evening. Now, let's get back to the phone calls. Annette is first in line. Good morning, Annette. Well, good morning. You are not kidding about it being a beautiful day outside today. <laughs> we deserve this. After the summer we put up with and uh, oh, the yeah. drought, uh, we we should get out and enjoy. Let Mother Nature know oh, we yeah. appreciate it for a change. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. So, I have quite a few large um, beds for my summer, mostly, I do mostly summer vegetable gardening, but uh-huh. I've got three, like three by 12 feet and then four, two by six feet beds. Okay. And I'm going to use uh, um, some space for my fall gardening. I've got sweet potatoes and eggplants still producing and peppers and some. Mm-hmm. Yep. So pretty much I'm wanting to put the rest of them to bed for the winter. And I've got several large bins of compost in different stages of decomposition, mm-hmm. as well as some partially decomposed leaf mold. Uh-huh. and some um, mulch, and I'm just wondering what's the best way to put those bins to bed till I'm ready to use them in the spring. Well, uh, again, you might want to save a little back and maybe plant some chard or spinach or something like that. There's still things you can harvest and enjoy. But the ones that are going to wait until spring kind of do what Mother Nature would do, put the material that is furthest broken down directly on top of the soil. Then put your material that started breaking down, but not really fully there yet. And then you put your fresher material on top. You know, if you went out forest floor and you started digging down, that's exactly what you'd find. The new undecomposed material up on top, the well-decomposed material on the bottom, and then the kind of half-decomposed in between. Uh, That is what you want to recreate. And if you're just going to put it in layers, that's all you need to do. If you want to blend something into the soil, 
blend your fully finished compost into the soil. Now you don't have to do that. Just putting it on top and water or rain, that takes the humic acids and a lot of the good things in the compost, a lot of the microbial life, and it'll go into the soil. It will soften the soil a great deal, even if you don't mix it in. But the important thing is the is the order in which you do it and just have most decomposed closest to the ground, least decomposed up where the microbes can still take uh, uh, nitrogen out of the air to do their breakdown. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. And I do plan plan to plant some cold hardy veggies in there, but after last huh? winter, I'm doing quite a few in pots <laughs> so I can move them into the greenhouse. So I learned and the hard way that's, <laughs> that's fine, too. And realize that some of those veggies are really hardy. Spinach, probably hardy to 15 degrees. Uh, chard, probably hardy down to 20 degrees. Uh, the others, lettuces and newly sprouted uh, roots like uh, radishes and carrots, turnips, things like that. Yeah, protect them when the weather the weather's going to get very much below freezing. And do save a little bit of room. The onions should be in in about two weeks. And onion plants, mm. plant them outside. Uh, even if the top freezes a little bit, they will they will come back out. And if you love garlic, start a few pots of garlic as well. This is the time of year to get garlic growing. So um, <laughs> I can give you lots of things to do out in that sunshine today. Oh, yeah. Oh, there's, there's so much. One other question. So we do have a couple of eggplant plants that are actually have some eggplants on them. So I covered them up with this last cold snap. Yeah. But... I don't know how much longer I'm going to have to allow some of those little baby ones on there to grow. Um, can you pick them early? Are they still good to eat if you pick them when they're young? Well, don't pick them until they're in danger of freezing. They're much better right. if they're bigger and more established. They don't really ripen like a tomato. You you put a tomato in the windowsill, it'll color up, and it won't ever get to be like vine ripe, but it will improve. Eggplant tends to just get softer rather than actually do much ripening. So uh, uh, try to leave them on the plants as long as you possibly can. And kind of weather we're having now, I mean, lows in the 50s, days in the upper 70s or 80s, they're going to go right on growing and getting better every day. So hopefully, hopefully we're going to have some good fall weather before we go back to winter. That's my hope as well, Bob. Well, I really appreciate your assistance, and I'll be calling you back again soon, I'm sure. I'll look forward to that, Annette. Get out and have a wonderful day. Okay. Thank you. Certainly. Goodbye. All right. Let's go ahead and talk to Judy. Good morning, Judy. Good morning, Bob. I Good morning. Appreciate what you said to the other lady. I, I needed to hear that again. Uh, okay. Well, Here's my little issues. I have a fig tree that grew too big because it shaded by sage, uh-huh. which got didn't get enough sun, and then it got mealy bugs and started to mildew or yeah that mildew like stuff on it you know the mm -hmm. black stuff yeah so it I, was wanted a... to, I want to move it to okay. the sun so when's a good time to do that late winter early spring um figs are not totally cold hardy Normally, if they freeze down, they come back out in the spring, but you don't want to transplant them in the fall and then have them subjected to a very stressful period. So I would, once it gets really cold, I would go ahead and cut it back to a manageable size. And I would put late February, early March on your calendars, the absolute best time to uh, dig it up and transplant it elsewhere. 
Now, would you like to have more than one plant to transplant? No, no. I just want to replant the sage. <laughs> okay. The tree is too big. Oh, okay. So the sage is what you want to transplant. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I again, I would wait till um, close to the end of winter. Is What what kind of sage is this? Is it salvia gregii? Is it one of the ones that normally stays evergreen, or is it one of the ones that freezes down and comes back? No, it's the sinisa, which has the purple flower. Oh, okay. Okay. Not really a sage, but everybody calls it purple sage. Yeah. Um, okay. you can You can transplant that plant Anytime through the winter months, uh, when when you say sage, I think more of salvia gregia and some of those. But your your um, your purple sage, uh, you transplant it when you know whenever you have the energy to do it. Have your new hole dug, and um, uh, you know just leave it, keep it out of the ground as short a period of time as possible. Dig it, getting as large a root ball as you can. Move it to the new hole, water it in with some Super Thrive, some Medina Plus, or some Garrett Juice, something like that, and uh, you should do just fine. But no, you can do that really pretty much any time between now and the middle of February. Okay. All right. I have, thank you. I have another little issue with, I planted, is it Crimin? C R I M U N, I think. Crinum. Crinum. Crinum lilies. Okay. And they, I think they're beautiful, but I have had no luck with them. And it just looks so, what's my problem? It's pretty much in the shade. Well, crinums need at least some sun. They they are something else that you probably should transplant. I would wait until late winter to transplant your crinums, but uh, the bright hot sun is just fine on those. Even though they have big fleshy leaves, look kind of tender, the more sun, the better they will bloom. Um, crinum suffered in 2021 because we got excessively cold. Normally, temperatures down to 15 degrees don't bother crinums at all. Some of them freeze back, some of them don't, but they always come back the next year. When we have a winter as cold as 2021 was, if they were if they were mulched, they came back just fine. But otherwise, uh, we actually had some of them freeze and die that winter. But uh, for now, I would water. I would probably mulch the bulbs. Early spring, dig them out and move them to a sunnier area. Okay, that's what I thought I probably needed, but I guess I just needed to hear it. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, because as the trees, as the plants grow bigger, I'm having less sun, and I have to have room for my veggies. Mm-hmm. So I'm just talking to myself there. Um, and the other thing is, I talked to you this earlier about this, but let's try it again. We planted palmetto grass. I think it's going to be a year or maybe two years for Idaho. I don't okay. remember. Wait, the, on the edges of it where it got a more sun and I probably didn't water it enough, but I don't like to water grass. Mm-hmm. It really looks puny. I would get some compost. The single best thing that we can do to help our lawns recover from this horrible summer uh, is going to be about a half inch of compost over the area. And um, I, it's if you're gonna have St. Augustine, you're gonna have to water. Unfortunately, that's that's just the nature of the grass. But where it looks bad, 
uh, half an inch, quarter to half an inch of compost over it is going to do more than anything else you could do for it. Okay, but what what would happen if I just put in some regular uh, St. Augustine there? Or what do you consider regular these days? Well, that tolerates better. Um, if you if it's a really sunny area, I would plant the variety called Floritam. Uh, it's jointly developed by the University of Florida and Texas A&M. That's where the name Floritam came from. But it is by far our most sun-tolerant St. Augustine. Uh, but if you plant, you're going to have to water. Uh, St. Augustine is just a grass that has to be watered. Uh, in the sun, you can plant things like Bermuda. If you stop watering, it turns brown, and then it comes back again when it gets water. St. Augustine, you don't water it, it dies. So... Um, uh, you, you're going to either have to make a commitment to water or you're going to have to create some beds of ground cover or plant something that doesn't require water to stay to survive. Okay. I guess at my other house, the St. Augustine always looked good if I watered it or didn't. I well, you probably, probably had deeper soil. Um, may okay. have been an area that got, you know, a little bit of protection from the hot afternoon sun, but uh, a lot of San Antonio has no soil. It's just a couple of inches of whatever on top of a sheet of rock. When you get it down in some other places, whether it's Terrell Hills or all the way down to King William, where you've got really deep soil, it's a lot easier to grow good grass. Okay. I, I was thinking that was probably the issue. As I tell All people right. out north, you know, there's a reason they call it stone oak out there. If you don't have much dirt, you've got a lot of stone, and there are places uh, that it's just hard to hard to get grass well established. Some places you actually have to bring in and add a couple of extra inches of soil, and even then it can be a little bit more of a challenge. So um, sometimes ground covers and, you know, attractive beds of drought-tolerant plants are going to be the answer. But uh, every situation is different. You should plant what you enjoy, and I'll do my best to tell you how to take care of it. Okay, there's one other thing I'd like to try. Chinese greens. Do you have a favorite one? Um, I Baby bok choy is one of my favorites. Um, now, if you want a leafy green, uh, there's a variety called uh, Michili, M-I-C-H-I-L-I, uh, is, is one that is usually used as a leafy green. But if you talk about what are traditionally considered leafy Asian greens, baby bok choy, where you eat the whole head at one time, uh, uh, that's, you asked me what my favorite is, that's my favorite, and I'm so unhappy that John and Shu Yu went out of the restaurant business because I used to eat that very regularly at Shu Yu Restaurant, and uh, it was one of the best things on the menu, in my opinion. Okay. I haven't seen any of that around. Well, ask for baby bok choy, and you can plant it from seed if you like. All right, that's probably what I need to do. Well, I appreciate you being there and listening to me, so thank you. And you are welcome, Judy, and I'm going to take just a minute. You can hang up if you want, but I know people are interested when I ask if you wanted another fig tree, and even though you don't, if you had told me yes, I would tell you this time of year, take a low branch or two of your fig tree and tie it to the ground. Put a rock over it, bend a clothespin into a U-shape or something, pin that branch to the ground, and put a big shovel full of dirt directly on top of the branch. 
Uh, by next spring, by March or April, that branch will have rooted down into the soil, at which point you can cut just behind where you put it down on the ground, uh, dig it up, and uh, that's called a layer, L-A-Y-E-R. And that's the old-fashioned way that nurserymen back in my grandfather's day reproduced a lot of shrubs. So anybody with a big fig tree that wants to make more by next spring, if you've got low limbs that you can pin to the ground and put a couple of shovelfuls of dirt on top, you'll have a rooted plant ready to cut off and dig up next spring. So just a little bonus information for you there. And I thank you for the call. And, uh, Jimmy, I know we've got one more break we need to get in here. Then we'll be back with time for at least a couple more phone calls. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right. Let's see how many calls we can squeeze in here. Wanda's first. Good morning, Wanda. Good morning. I um, just got on your program this morning, so forgive me if I'm covering or asking what you've maybe already told. Probably needs audience. to be told twice, so go right ahead. <laughs> okay, I have a large, not a large garden, but anyway, part of the garden, which is about oh, 12 to 15 feet wide by 60 feet long, um, I it's fertile soil, however, mm-hmm. the weeds and the nutsedge. So this summer, I did put on a black plastic on it, and until the sun just deteriorated the black plastic so i guess nothing has been on it for the last month okay so at this point i'm just wondering if cardboard i've heard people using the corrugated cardboard and i have a lot of it that i could use and um maybe um uh, sh- uh shredded uh leaves sure. on top of it or even uh chicken manure or so some type so of compost or something, what or, what do you have in the way of weeds now? How effective was the black plastic in getting the weeds down? Well, I when I took it off, it looked dead, but there are, I mean, all all sorts of wild weeds, you know. Okay, uh, basically, I wouldn't do much of anything right now because you know the things that are already brown. You're not going to do a whole lot putting your cardboard down, and the cardboard. The whole idea behind it is that it is going to break down. I would wait until a little closer to spring. I would wait until it's about time for the weeds to start growing again, and I would put well, your they cardboard are now. They're, okay, they're well then, really green yeah. Then in that case, go ahead and put your cardboard on this afternoon. Put it a couple of layers deep. Weight it down with you know whatever it takes to keep it in place because it will be at your neighbor's yeah. with the first big gust of wind. But weight yeah. it down. Uh, if you have leaves and things to put on top of it, that's great. Spray them down with some Medina Plus or something like that or some liquid molasses. In fact, you could even add a little more molasses to your Medina Plus. That's going to cause them to decompose and break down that much faster, and you'll be you know closer to being ready for spring. So uh, next summer, if you still have the issue, need to get a little bit heavier-duty plastic. Get 6 mil instead of 4 mil and uh, maybe use clear plastic instead of black so that the sun can kind of act like a car on a hot afternoon. So it can really, really heat that soil up. You want to wet before you put it down. But uh, um, done properly, you know, September, July, well, actually July, August, September, you should have almost 100% eliminated that weed, the weeds. So 
Uh, let's talk this next summer if you haven't gotten them under control by then and uh, try to get it a little bit more effective. But, no, I think you're fine for now. Put your cardboard down two or three layers thick. Uh, weight it down good, then put what you can on leaves on top of it, and you'll be way ahead when you start planting in about March or so. Good. That's great. And then as far as another question, uh, bell peppers, when they get a little deformed, of course, over the uh, summer months, they were small, and of course, they're producing more now, but is there a reason for that? It's heat. Bell peppers produce very heavily in the spring, produce very heavily in the the fall. The summer months, they will produce, but the fruit will be much, much uh, smaller, and it typically uh, ripens earlier. The the peppers turn red, doesn't affect the flavor, but it certainly affects the texture. So uh, bell peppers, uh, again, spring and fall, your best time. Hot peppers from jalapenos to serranos to chichitos, all of those are ones that are going to do extremely well in the hot summer. Going to have to hold you there. Let's talk again next weekend. Uh, Time for Dr. Kirby next, right here on KTSA Radio, beautiful San Antonio, Texas.